this morning, friends, we come to the end of our journey through the book of 1 Peter. I pray that this series over the last term has been an encouragement to you, a challenge to you, and perhaps even a little reorientating as we've considered what it looks like to be an elect exile who is scattered in this world for the Lord Jesus. We've seen a number of themes develop throughout our study of this book, haven't we? This book, which was written to predominantly Gentile believers, spread throughout the northeast of the Roman Empire. Believers, we've seen, who had come to faith in the Lord Jesus and who had resolved to follow him, even in a world that was hostile to their faith. They were beginning to experience persecution and opposition and discrimination for being a follower of the Lord Jesus. And so we've seen throughout the letter that there's been a, a backdrop, hasn't there, of pain and suffering and perhaps even a little fear on the part of these Christians. And Peter's sought to encourage them as brothers and sisters in Christ in the midst of these trials, reminding them of their value in God's sight, that they were chosen before the creation of the world to be his special possession, declaring the gospel in word and in deed. And he's unpacked for, for us what that looks like day by day. We've seen that it means costly submission. And that was a word in season for us, wasn't it? In the midst of the times that we find ourselves in. Costly submission to, to governments, to our employers, in our homes, and even in our churches, as we saw last week with Jason. And Peter's also reminded us of the certainty of, but yet God's purpose in our suffering, especially as we suffer for the name of Jesus. And here in these final words to these believers, Peter reiterates two key orientating truths, two key truths both for them and for us, to fill us with, with hope and guide our way as we follow Jesus. Be alert, but not alarmed. Be alert, but not alarmed. Let's start with that first principle in verses 8 and 9. Be alert. I think there are, there are probably two extremes we can fall into as Christians when it comes to Satan. We can fall into the trap of becoming unhealthily obsessed or fearful of Satan. Over, overstating his power, thinking that he's all-powerful and all-knowing and ever-present like God. But yet, as an angel, albeit a fallen one, he's, he's limited to one time and place and is finite in power. We can fall into the trap of thinking that Satan is in control of this world. But that's not true, is it? God is sovereign over this world. He is in control of all things. And Satan's only able to go as far as God allows. That's one extreme. But then, of course, we can 
we can fall into the other extreme and fail to take Satan seriously enough. Dismissing his threat, almost. Pretending that he doesn't exist. Perhaps almost reducing him to a kind of cartoon villain. Back when we considered chapter 1 and our view of heaven, Colin challenged us to, to think about whether our view of heaven is a biblical one or perhaps more cartoony, you know, sitting on clouds, playing harps, that kind of thing. And friends, I think the same thing applies here. Perhaps we need to examine ourselves to consider, do I have a, a biblical view of Satan or do I, have I fallen into the extreme of thinking in, in an almost cartoony character, you know, a, a guy in a red suit with horns? So that we might avoid the trap of either extreme, Peter points us to a wise mediating ground here. Recognising the, the very real threat of Satan, but yet seeing him in light of Jesus' victory. See what he says here in verses 8 and 9. I hope you've got your Bible still open there at home. This is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. It's kind of like Peter pulls back the curtain of our physical world here, that we might see the spiritual reality. The word that's translated devil means deceiver, for that is what Satan is. He, he seeks to deceive. And notice that Peter doesn't pull any punches. Satan is dangerous. Wounded, angry lions attack don't you? If you happen to be walking through a, 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 a savannah in Africa, perhaps a, a similar kind of scene to our kids' song today, and you came across a wounded lion, you wouldn't go up to it and, and pat it, would you? No, you'd avoid it. Because wounded, angry lions attack. And that's what Satan is. The book of Revelation reveals that he has already been defeated and he is awaiting destruction. But yet, as we now await Christ's return, he continues to prowl around, hell-bent on destroying whoever he encounters. And so we need to take the threat and danger of Satan seriously. Because of this reality, friends, the fact that Satan seeks to deceive and devour us, Peter tells us we need to be alert. We need to be alert. You know, I was wondering this week as I was preparing in my study at home, as Peter wrote these words, did his mind go back to the night when Christ was betrayed and the Lord Jesus gave him this same instruction? Where that night, his mind not ready for battle, his body ill-prepared for, for temptation, he slept in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he found himself ill-equipped to 
of temptation that came. Perhaps Peter still had Jesus' tender rebuke in mind. Simon, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you won't feel into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the body is weak. Perhaps with the words of the Lord Jesus still ringing in his mind, Peter passes on here the same instruction to us. Be alert, sober-minded, watchful, because Satan is having a grab. Brothers and sisters, there's no mysterious secret to standing firm against Satan. Peter tells us very clearly what we need to do here. Be alert and of sober mind. Navigate this world through the lens of Scripture. That's what we've seen in this series, isn't it? To, to navigate this world, to, to walk the narrow road as a disciple of Jesus based on what God has said in the Scriptures, not what we might see and touch and feel each day. But what does that actually look like? What does it look like to be alert in the midst of this world? To recognize that Satan is prowling around. There's two things I want to highlight today. First of all, we need to remain alert that Satan tempts us to sin. That Satan will tempt us to put our own fleshly desires for here and now ahead of what God has called us to in his word. We see this in Satan's temptation of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4, don't we? Where Satan urges Jesus to use his power selfishly to fulfill his own worldly desires and turn stones into bread. You can just imagine Satan's words to Jesus in that moment, can't you? You're hungry, Jesus. You've got the power. Why not? What's the harm? No one's going to get hurt, Jesus. We can imagine Satan's words, can't we? Because they're exactly the same words that he utters to us too. Why not? You deserve it. No one will get hurt. No one will know. The lies that Satan seeks to deceive us. We need to be alert that Satan will tempt us to sin. But we also need to be alert that he'll seek to get us to doubt our standing and our relationship with God. This is where we need to remove that, that cartoony view of Satan from our mind. Because Satan doesn't try to attack us with pitchforks, but with doubt. He tries to undermine our faith. He tries to confuse us as to what is actually true. If God really is good, he says, he, he wouldn't have allowed that to happen. You can't trust him. If he really loved you, he would have delivered you by now. When you think about it, that's exactly what he did to Eve in the Garden of Eden, isn't it? Did God really say? Asking Eve, Eve challenging Eve, to doubt the goodness and the word of God. That's what Satan does. He tries to replace our trust and our confidence in God with doubt. Knowing that, 
just as these believers no doubt found in their trials, knowing that, let's be honest, in the midst of trial and suffering and hardship, all of us can be tempted to doubt the goodness and the promises of God. And so, in light of all this, verse 9, we're to resist him, standing firm in the faith. When we're alert and sober-minded, our eyes fixed on Christ and his victory over Satan, we can see Satan's lies for what they are and resist them. When we do that, when we keep our eyes focused on Christ, we see Satan for who he is. He is a defeated foe, doomed to destruction. And so we can dismiss his lies for what they are. Now, I know, this seems simple on paper, doesn't it? But the hard day-by-day reality for all of us, I know it is for me, is that it's hard to resist the devil. And sometimes the harder and the longer we resist, the harder it seems. But yet, you know what? And perhaps you can have this conversation with someone else who's been following Jesus for a long time, and they'll share this with you. But oftentimes, in fact, the longer we resist, the longer we resist the temptations, oftentimes the intensity of the temptations actually diminishes. The Apostle Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 10.13 that God is faithful, that he will not let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Friends, that is a truth that we need to know and remember and even speak to ourselves in that moment of temptation. That God has promised in his word, and he is faithful, that he will never let us be tempted beyond what we can bear. He will never let us get into a situation where the only possible alternative is for us to fall into sin. No, God is faithful. As we're going to see later, he provides the strength for us to endure. But he also provides a way out. To use perhaps a trite example, it's a bit like hunger. Now, you might be desperately hungry right now. You've got pains in your stomach and all you can think about is food. As soon as the service is over, all you want to do is go down to Macca's and buy a family pack and eat it all to yourself. Eat it all for yourself. And yes, Cohen, I am thinking of you in this moment. The hunger just seems unbearable. But you know what? If you resist the temptation, in an hour, you're not quite as hungry, are you? And then if you can continue to resist the temptation, a few hours' time, you've actually forgotten you were ever hungry at all. If you've ever done the the 40-hour famine, I don't know if that's still around these days, but you know what I'm talking about. On on the Friday night of the 40-hour famine, I think you you start fasting at about 8 o'clock at night. All you can think about is food, despite the fact you only had the evening meal maybe a couple of hours ago. It's unbearable on Friday night, and you go to bed feeling absolutely awful. You're thinking to yourself, there is no way I'm going to make Sunday lunch. I am going to drop dead here. But you do endure and make it to Sunday lunch, don't you? And, and when you reach that end point of the 40 hours, you actually don't feel hungry at all. Friends, it's the same as we 
resisting. It's excruciating at first. It's painful and it's hard and it's desperate. But you know what? As time goes on, the temptation does lessen. You know what? Peter gives us an important reminder there in verse 9. That we aren't alone in this battle. We all, myself, every member of our church family, we all face temptation. We all struggle against sin. We all face attacks on our faith. Satan makes tries to make us feel alone. That's one of his regular tactics, isn't it? He tries to make us feel as we look around church as if everyone else has got it together. As if no one else is experiencing this temptation. No one else is struggling like me. But that's not true, is it? And Peter reminds us of that there, protecting his readers and us from one of the lies of the devil. We're all in it together. Be alert to the devil's schemes, he says, but not alarmed, but not alarmed. Why is that? Well, Peter gives us the reason in verse 10. Our enemy has been defeated. God will put all things right. And by his strength, not our own, but by his strength, he will bring us to himself. That's just the reassurance we need. I know it's certainly the reassurance that I need. Our future is secure. Because of God's power, not our labor. Verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. God, the source of all grace, and power and strength has called us to eternal glory in Christ. We will suffer a little while, but we have no need to fear, for he will make us strong, firm, and steadfast. Peter uses a a flurry of four verbs here to describe God's work to ensure that we arrive safely in his presence. He'll restore us. That word's translated mend elsewhere in the New Testament, like you might mend nets. God will mend us. He'll attend to us. He'll he'll make us whole. And he'll make us strong, firm, and steadfast. As we've seen throughout this book, a, a solid spiritual house, unshakable, immovable, even in the storm. You know, the Apostle Peter, the author of this epistle, certainly would go on to himself experience the reality of God's sustaining grace on the road to glory. Early church records report that the Apostle Peter was ultimately crucified upside down. His long anticipated, it's certainly been a theme of this letter, his long-anticipated entry into glory coming at the end of one final experience of suffering and humiliation. 
the inheritance of heaven coming only through the Holy Spirit. That's been a recurring theme throughout this epistle, hasn't it? Our future inheritance will come by way of present suffering. Exaltation follows humiliation. Just as it was for Jesus, so it was for the Apostle Peter, and so it will be for us. But how can we be sure? How can we know that Peter's words of reassurance, his confident words here, aren't just wishful thinking? How can we know that they're actually true? Well, by the grace of God and the inspiration of the Spirit, this passage is littered with assurances for us that God will do what he says. There's four reasons we can be confident that I want to highlight for you now. Four reasons we can be sure that God will do what he says. The first is there in verse 6. The power of God. I love the phrase that Peter uses. That God's hand is mighty. Exodus, you might recall, uses the same mighty hand language to describe God's liberation of Israel from bondage in Egypt. It was his mighty hand, we read, that performed the signs and wonders. It was his mighty hand that stopped the Red Sea. It was his mighty hand that provided for Israel in the wilderness. He is all-powerful. And as the new Israel, the new covenant recipients of his power and promises, we can equally rest in his might. For he is the one who raises the dead, who calms the storm, and who works all things according to his good purpose. What comfort there is in that, my friends. That God, the one who rules in all power, is our Father. And he he who has a mighty hand has promised to bring us home to glory. We can also rest sure in the love of God. For as Peter reminds us there in verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. God cares for you. I wonder, what things are you worried about right now? What are the things that you find yourself constantly worrying about as you lay there at night? What are the things that you're worried about that you constantly talk about with your spouse or your kids or your work colleagues? What things are causing you fear and anxiety right now? I wonder, have you, as an act of humble, dependent faith, given those cares over to our Lord? I don't know about you, but I can't think of anything greater than knowing that the all-wise, all-powerful God cares about me and that he invites me to cast my fears, my responsibilities, 
my relationships, my insecurities, all on him. We can take all of our fears and lay them on him. And when we do that, my brothers and sisters, we replace our fears and our anxieties with hope. Yes, hardship and trials are present. But you know what? God is Friends, there's comfort, but also challenge in Peter's words here to us. Because please see, the comfort of verse 7 only comes after a quite confronting diagnosis of all of us there in verse 6. Let me read those two verses together, side by side to us again. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Do you see what Peter links together here? Do you see what he identifies as the cause of our anxiety? Pride. Pride. Why do we worry? Well, it's because we've decided that we want things to turn out a particular way, don't we? And we're concerned that they might not go the way that we would hope. And so we worry. We determine in all of our wisdom the the best course of action for God to take. And then we, we worry and we toss and we turn and we check to ensure that it happens. But you see what we're doing there? We're trying to control the outcome, aren't we? Not truly leaving it in God's hands. As one commentator I read this week put it, Worry constitutes pride, since it denies the care of a sovereign God. The antidote to worry is believing in and resting in God's care for believers. It's a bit like cooking a steak. The the master barbecuers amongst us will tell you that the best, the only way to cook a steak is to put it down on the grill and only turn it once. You put the steak down on the grill, and you trust the process. The temptation is, of course, to to worry, and to, to check, and to prod, and to poke, and to turn the steak over and over again, but all that does is it ruins the steak. It makes it really hard. I wonder, my brother, my sister, what are you prodding, and poking, and turning over again and again at the moment? rather than handing it over to God and leaving it all to him. When you think about it, our worry indicates one of two things, doesn't it? It indicates that we don't trust God enough, that we don't have a lofty enough view of God, that we don't truly view him as sovereign and in control of all circumstances. Or the other alternative is that we don't trust God's definition of good. We don't trust that he will, in fact, work things out for our good. So we try to do things our own way. When you think about it, that is pride, isn't it? That is pride. The solution? Well, it's in the word casting there in verse 7. That's how we're to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. We cast all of our anxiety on him. 
we humble ourselves in the knowledge that he cares for us. Accepting God first to exalt us in due time, but yet humbling us through suffering in this life. I don't know about you, but this can all feel a bit overwhelming. Maybe you're watching this morning live or again this evening, and you're thinking to yourself, Andrew, that's all fine, but brother, I've got nothing left right now. I'm struggling to get through another day of lockdown. I, I can't think about eternity at the moment. I've got, I've got nothing. Well, praise God, in his providence, he has a solution for us. Because as we saw last week with Jason, whilst he does oppose the proud, he gives grace to the humble. That's the next reason Peter gives us that we can be sure. The grace of God. He describes God as the God of all grace. There in verse 10. Friends, God supplies what we need. He gives us the grace and the strength that we need to follow him. And we can trust in the promises of God. He will fulfill his promises. He will end. He will bring to completion the work that he begins in us. He who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus, we're encouraged in Philippians 1.6. Or as Paul reminded the Thessalonians, the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. My brothers and sisters, Peter points us here at the end of his letter to our only sure basis of confidence, our God. God's character is the basis of both our faithfulness, he's the one that empowers it, and our confidence. Our God will not fail to extend to us all the grace that we need. Suffering can't stop his transforming work. Our circumstances, they can't get in the way of his redeeming work. He will restore us, make us strong and firm and steadfast, continuing his work until his work in us is done. My brothers and sisters, this means that as elect exiles who are scattered, we can be confident about our future and so liberated to live for God wholeheartedly today. God's promises that guarantee our future equally transform our todays. And so friends, it's only right that in a passage like this, that is grounded in the character and promises of our God, that Peter ends in doxology. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen.